Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And one thing about human dignity is people like to control their own destiny. Sovereign nations get to choose their own leaders without meddling from foreign countries. We have certainly been feeling that, uh, oh, ever since Trump got elected, there's no question that the, uh, the Russians colluded. I'm not sure the president actually understands the meaning of that word colluded, but they interfered in our democracy. We don't like that. Other nations should not be interfering in the decision-making of how other people want to govern themselves. Well, there may be many legitimate and quite distinct definitions of the phrase national security. If a country's infrastructure is crumbling, bridges are falling apart, unemployment is high, citizens can't get water or electricity, it would be difficult to say that country enjoys real national security. Of course, that's not the customary definition of national security. When America's sons and daughters put on that uniform and bravely agree to put themselves in harm's way in foreign lands, it's with the understanding that they, that we, are fighting the bad guys who want to do harm to America. The goal is to make us more secure by both defending uh, the democratic rights of the people in those nations as well as making sure the governments of those nations Uh, want to do us harm. Uh, We want to protect their democracy, their right to govern themselves as we like it here. In other words, for the effective defense of our country, it's good to have friendly governments around the world who don't want to do us harm. Look look at the history of that exercise uh, both since the attacks of 9-11 and in the Cold War decades when we worried about communists undermining our national security, and our global interests. It's sobering to recognize how well it has not worked. Our guest, Major Danny Searson, wrote about this in an article on TruthDig titled The Tragic Record of American Regime Change. Major Danny Danny Searson, I'm honored to say, is a returning guest on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to talk to you today. Danny is a U.S. Army strategist and former history instructor at West Point. He served tours with reconnaissance unit in Iraq and Afghanistan and has written a memoir and critical analysis of the Iraq War, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. Well, again, thanks for being with us. I find it fascinating 
how full of righteous indignation Americans are at the Russian interference in our recent election. Of course, I share that anger. It's not right for one country to inject itself and mess with the crucial exercise of choosing a leader. Each country has sovereign rights to govern itself. Exceptions to that rule seem to be that, well, if America decides what we want to, that we want to do that, oh, it's okay. How do our policy leaders deal with the concept of sovereignty? That's a question. You've been around policy, uh, state foreign policy, and the military world for a long time. What are the talking points when it comes to American rights to meddle in foreign elections and our feeling about the sovereignty of other countries? It's really an interesting question. Before I dig in, I'm just going to give my usual disclaimer uh, that uh, I'm speaking for myself in an unofficial capacity and, uh, and not the United States Army or the Department of Defense. Of course. Now, that having been said, it's an important disclaimer, by the way, because it gives you a sense of how the U.S. government sees itself. Um, my dissent that you're about to hear is not popular within the ranks, uh, is not a career booster. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is that the United States has an extraordinarily obtuse and contradictory sense of sovereignty when it comes to other countries in the world. There seems to be an understanding that the United States should expect to have friendly governments around the world, and in fact should do everything in its power to ensure that there are friendly governments throughout the world in order to ensure our national security. Now that word gets thrown around a lot. I really like what you said earlier about national security really having a more holistic definition of crumbling bridges or lack of a social safety net. But in American sense of the word, national security means doing anything yeah. and everything possible or available in order to ensure American hegemony, really, around the world. We are the only country in the world that bases our troops in over 100 foreign nations. We are the only country in the world that divides the entire globe up into military commands with four-star generals as proconsuls in charge of them. And so it is very interesting to watch, for example, MSNBC, which is a, quote, liberal network. Uh, MSNBC may as well be called the uh, Russiagate network. That's all they talk about. Yeah, I mean, true. You can't get anything else on MSNBC. I know. I know. And I used to watch. I used to watch some of these shows. I can't anymore because it's, it's overwhelming. But... They're so up in arms. There's such indignation about this Russian meddling in the election. But America has a record of meddling with elections that goes back at least to the Second World War and really continues up to the present because, quite frankly, there was some American involvement, it appears, based on reporting, in the Ukrainian election. Oh, absolutely. In 2014 and uh, prior to the Russian uh, intervention there. So it, it's very interesting um, I, I think it's a, it's a peculiarly American approach to the world to, to see things in such a contradictory way. Uh, we are not a very self-aware people. Hmm. We're not a very informed people on foreign policy. And Washington, the Beltway insiders, they sort of exploit that, and, uh, and, and they expect the citizenry not to care about how we meddle in other people's elections. That's for sure. Now, what would they say about the concept of, of sovereignty? I know they figure most people have no clue as to you know, what that means. It's, it's outside of our normal daily uh, uh, discussion. But don't, I mean, they must have talking points as to why it's okay for us to meddle in their elections. I mean, well, it, it goes back to this concept of, it, it goes back to this unique and holistic view of national security. Um, 
our sovereignty as Americans means that no country has any right to threaten our borders, involve themselves in our elections, even uh, affect our diplomats overseas. But our concept of sovereignty for other countries is much more squishy. I'll give you an example. Technically, under international law, Bashar al-Assad is the sovereign ruler of Syria. He remains that under international law. Yes. Okay? Until a Security Council resolution is passed that essentially says he is a war criminal and he no longer has legitimacy, uh, which will never happen because right. Russia will veto it. Right. Until that happens, he is a sovereign uh, leader. If he is a sovereign leader, then he has the right to invite people, invite other countries, mm -hmm. to intervene on his behalf. He has invited Iran yes. and Russia yes. to intervene in his civil war on his side. Yes. He is within his legal uh, rights to do so. Yes. The United States, on the other hand, has put American soldiers up to 2,000, as well as American mm -hmm. air power, into eastern Syria as, as an intervention to stop ISIS. Now, we can argue about whether that's a good or a bad thing, but what's interesting is the notion of sovereignty. The United States doesn't stop for one second and ask whether we have a right mm -hmm. to meddle in a country we were not invited into. You see, our view of sovereignty is that we have absolute sovereignty, but our national security requires us at times to intervene in other nations but what we say, and here's the talking point, Bert, that I think you're trying to get to, what we say is, so long as there are transnational terrorists, which we get to define whether they are or they're not, and so long as there are, quote, ungoverned spaces in a place like Syria or Somalia, then the United States has the absolute right to intervene in what should be sovereign nations. Oh. It, it's, it's, a very, uh, it's, a, it's a very flexible approach to sovereignty that we have. Uh, it's hypocritical, and if you go to the U.N. or you actually watch uh, the... the debate on the floor of either the Security Council or the General Assembly, you'll see that most other countries recognize the hypocrisy and regularly call us out. It's not reported in American media. Most Americans never consider it. Yeah, interesting. So if we say it's, you know, fair game, then, hey, it's fair game. Never mind what the people of the uh, local area say. And I'm, it's funny, I'm, I'm reading a book now about uh, the Boer War and the British and the Germans and the Dutch and the Portuguese in Africa. They... They didn't care about local people one bit. You know, it's just the, the scramble for Africa, as they call it. And it sounds like, hey, Britain isn't doing it anymore. They're not so great anymore. So I guess that's, that's up to us. Now, you know, this is not a, a, a partisan issue at all. Regime change has long been embraced by both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, we probably start with the current examples since 9-11 and, and work back. And there's a lot of stuff. Your article opens with a personal, almost Twilight Zone kind of irony. Looking back to your days fighting in Iraq, 2006-2007, when you were patrolling the streets of East Baghdad, you personally, the leader of the enemy forces was someone you guys called Mookie. Mookie. You lost some of who you call your boys to his violent forces. Who was Mookie then, and who is he now? It's, it's really, it's a, it's a difficult thing to talk about, and I think part of the reason I write yeah, these well, personal yeah. anecdotes is because it's cathartic for me. Yeah. Mookie uh, was a demagogue and a militia leader named Muqtada al-Sadr. And uh, Sadr comes from a very prestigious family of Islamic scholars and community leaders. Both his brother... His uh, father and his uncle were executed by Saddam Hussein. Mookie, as we called him in sort of a 
pejorative way, yes. <laughs> uh, was considered a joke prior to the American invasion. Huh. He, uh, he had no scholarly credentials. He took to playing uh, video games uh, at, instead of studying his Islamic studies, and so people have actually called him Mullah Atari, uh, based on the Atari video games he played in the 80s. Uh-huh. And he was not considered a serious figure. He was sort of the uh, son who was the black sheep of the family. Right. After the American invasion in 2003, however, he was the last remaining Sadr, because the others, the more prestigious ones, had been killed by Saddam Hussein. And the Sadr name, the Sadr brand, was very powerful, especially among the urban Shia impoverished youth of Sadr City, uh, which was an area of northeast Baghdad. Millions of people live in Sadr City. It's like the Gaza Strip, except in Baghdad. Okay, It's very, very densely populated. He's able to whip up a combination of Islamism, Shia Islamism, and nationalism against the American occupation. In the process, he is able to take his followers, of which he has many, and uh, turn them into uh, an armed militia, which was called Jaish al-Mahdi, which in Arabic is the Mahdi army. This refers to uh. the Mahdi, who is a Christ-like figure who's expected to come back to Earth at the time of the apocalypse. Uh. Okay. These fighters, uh, and there were thousands of them, uh, declared war, essentially, on the American army and our occupation in April of 2004. And from April of 2004, well into 2009 and 10, uh, the Mahdi army, especially in East Baghdad, uh, was the primary threat to American soldiers. Over a 1,000 Americans were killed uh, by the Mahdi army. Um, two of my soldiers, um, uh, Michael Balsley and uh, Alex Fuller, sometimes it's important to say the names, yes. uh, were yes. killed on January 25, 2007, by mm. a bomb that was in place by the Mahdi army, and which the design for that bomb came from the Iranians. And here's the irony. Sadr only becomes a powerful figure because of our invasion. Mm. Because our invasion provided him the space and the talking points to whip up nationalism against us. He would have remained a marginal figure had the United States never invaded Iraq. But the problem with regime change, Bert, the problem with regime change is there are completely unintended consequences. When you overturn a government, you don't know what you're going to do. You may empower the wrong people. And we did. We empowered Sadr on the streets. But now, now, 14 years after the invasion, 15 nearly years after the invasion, Sadr has rebranded himself as a political figure, mm-hmm. an anti-corruption figure, a nationalist sort of unity candidate. And his party, the Jaysh al party, the Sadr bloc, just won the Iraqi election. Now, Sadr will not become prime minister because he didn't personally run, but his party... Uh, is is in the lead in the elections, and he stands to be the kingmaker in the prime ministership in Iraq as the government is formed. This is an extraordinary irony, and for a veteran of the Iraq War, it was remarkable and sad for me to see this happen, but what it told me was, more than just being angry, because Sadr was responsible for the death of my soldiers, it told me something broader about regime change and the unintended consequences, the dangers of meddling in foreign countries, the dangers in invading and destabilizing a society. And, and that, to me, is the lesson. And it started to get me thinking about the poor record of American regime change in the last 17 years, which, of course, we can talk about, but quite frankly, I'm comfortable going all the way back to the 50s to oh, talk yeah. about other regime changes. 
Oh, we will. There's no lack of regime changes. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll stay with the more recent stuff uh, for now. we got a little bit of time. Uh, and just to uh, remind people what they're listening to, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Major Danny Searson, who's written about the tragic record of American regime change. He saw action in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, the U.S. toppled two not nice guys, brutal dictators, Iraq's Saddam Hussein and Libya's Muammar Gaddafi. Leaders of both American parties were cheerleaders for this. Uh, who wouldn't want to get these creeps out of power? But as you write, when the United States uses its impressive military machine to topple a tyrant, it's impossible to predict the course of the chaos that follows. End of quote. American politicians expected Iraqi and Libyan people to throw flowers at our troops for ridding them of a hated tyrant. What actually happened and how did it affect our national interest, do you think, Danny? Well, I'm in the middle of a piece right now about Syria. And as an opening to that piece, I'm sort of discussing the different models. There's two essential models of American regime change post 9-11. Model number one is the Iraq and Afghanistan model. And that is when we provide a massive military force to invade, topple a tyrant, and then occupy the place until it becomes a liberal democracy in our own image. Okay, this was the goal. This was, yeah. the, this was mm -hmm. the George W. Bush. This was model one of regime change. Call it regime change heavy. Okay? <laughs> the second model was the Barack Obama model. Yeah. No drama, Obama. Don't do stupid stuff. This was, his, this was the kind of stuff he said in private, uh, according to reports about the inside of his administration. But he didn't shy away from regime change. He just did it differently. Mm. Model number two. And this is the Libya model, or what you may call regime change light. Mm -hmm. And in this model, we use American and European air power to back militias, who we may not understand, on mm -hmm. the ground, mm -hmm. and provide them the horsepower and the firepower to be able to topple another tyrant, in this case, Muammar Gaddafi. In model number two, in regime change light, we do not provide the military force, the State Department representatives, the U.S. aid funding to try to put the society back together. And what happens on the ground is chaos ensues. Mm -hmm. Here's the irony about model number one and model number two. The output for the societies themselves is remarkably similar whether we go heavy or light. Libya fragmented into fiefdoms of warlords and uh, opposing governments that each claim legitimacy and provided an opening for an Islamic State ISIS branch yeah. in the town of Sirte. Well, maybe you would say, if you're a George W. Bush guy, you'd say, well, that makes sense. Obama didn't have the guts to put enough soldiers on the ground. Obama didn't put enough money into it. He didn't try to rebuild the society. But then the regime changed light. People would say, wait a second. When you did this in Iraq, you did provide all that money. You did provide trillions of dollars and thousands of dead American lives sacrificed in the streets of places like Baghdad and Anbar province. But the output was remarkably similar. A fracturing of the society, increased autonomy for the Kurds, the growth of Islamic State, Islamist extremists, yeah. al-Qaeda branch first, then ISIS in, mm. in, in northern and western Iraq. And now we have a militia leader who uh, is expected to be the kingmaker of the new Iraq. So the remarkable thing about model number one and model number two is the output ends up being about the same. Mm. The society suffers. Yeah. Life actually deteriorates under post-American invasion rule. It is actually often worse in terms of the violence than existed under the tyrants. So the question becomes, is 
foreign-imposed, Western-imposed regime change itself the problem? Maybe we're the problem. Maybe neither of those models is a successful way to build a new society. Maybe both bring chaos. Maybe both cost us trillions of dollars. Maybe both cost us many American lives and tens of thousands of civilian lives. What if we're the problem? It brings you back to the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Why can we not learn that? We seem unable to stop meddling in other people's elections, in other people's sovereignty. And the world is full of tyrants. It is a dangerous place. And I wish it was not. The question becomes, which tyrants does the United States choose to topple? Number one, and we show an enormous amount of hypocrisy in who we care about and who we don't care about, because we back plenty of tyrants. Oh, yeah. And then, what happens when America does decide to topple a tyrant? If we make it worse, both for our own security and for the security of the people on the ground, then what are we doing? Perhaps we would have been better off taking the $5.6 trillion that the Brown University Cost of War Project has estimated we have and will spend on the war on terror. Perhaps we would have been better off if we had dug a massive acre-sized hole in the Mojave Desert of California and bulldozed those $5.6 trillion into the hole, covered it with dirt. That would have been a more effective policy than everything we've done since 9-11. And I can't even, I mean, I can't even imagine a trillion dollars. I, I, I just, you know, who can even think of those dollars? I mean, I can think of a billion. That's a million million. <laughs> no, a thousand million. And I guess a trillion, I don't even know. It's just an insane amount of money, $5.6 trillion. I, I, you know, I got to ask, this, there are obvious you know, lessons that can be learned. I, I'm just wondering how these decisions get made. You know, there's politicians who, for whatever reason, they want to look tough, whatever. But what about the State Department and the Pentagon? They have, you know, people on the ground, uh, people who are put themselves in harm's way, people die. Do they participate in this process at all? Do they think things through, the State Department and or the Pentagon? They must have some role. I mean, do they just go along with what the, you know, the president has to say? The State Department has been uh, castrated, and I choose that word purposely to be provocative, over the last 17 years. The State Department has seen its funding cut. It has seen its voice increasingly shouted down. Many, many senior State Department officials actually resigned when Rex Tillerson came in and when Trump was elected. They feel marginalized because they are marginalized. America doesn't do diplomacy anymore. And when we do diplomacy, it's the Pentagon that does it. Now, the Pentagon's an interesting place. And, uh, and I never worked there, and they're not happy with me, I'm quite sure. <laughs> no doubt. But the Pentagon is interesting because there are some really bright voices there. Mm, I bet. There are some actual thinkers in the military. Not a lot, but there are some. <laughs> and these individuals actually recognize that much of what we're doing is counterproductive. And they want to focus on great power conflict. They want to go back to the Cold War state of mind and prepare for a war we'll never fight meaning a war with Russia or a war with China. Right. God help us that no. we should never have to fight. No. They don't make policy, unfortunately. Now, that's a good thing, because we don't want the military making policy right. in, in the government, to. but in some odd ways, it would be, we'd be better served if they were. Hmm. For example, I trust I Secretary of Defense that. Mattis to make, a man who I disagree with on many issues, I trust him, based on his character and his general level of intelligence, to make better decisions than most of the politicians within the Washington Beltway. Right, and here's action. the problem. 
the Beltway politicians, the civilian chicken hawks, meaning the guys who never yeah. serve but are ready to send your sons and daughters to die. Right. Those people are bipartisan. There is a bi. It's the only thing they agree on. It's a <laughs> bipartisan agenda of militarism. Jeez. Whether you got it. Think about this for a second. Think about the leadership of our two parties. They have nothing in common. Chuck Schumer and Hillary Clinton, back when she was you know, a leader of the Democratic Party, and Mitch McConnell and John McCain, they can't agree on a thing. I mean, name something they agree with. You couldn't do it. Well, there's one thing. They all voted for the Iraq War. They all supported the Libyan invasion. They all supported the president's surge into Afghanistan. The one thing they agree on is the application of American military power around the world to do almost anything we want. Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton all voted for the Iraq War. Now, of course, the Republicans voted for the Iraq War. We expect that, of right? We expect them to be interventionists. It's remarkable how bipartisan the militarist agenda is. Mm-hmm. It, it serves no one. The only thing it serves is the budgets of the military, which increase exponentially, yeah. which civilian secretaries want and certain generals want, and the military-industrial complex, the arms dealers, yeah, okay. the merchants of death, oh, yeah. as Smedley Butler once called them, mm-hmm. they benefit. But the State Department has been sidelined. Yeah. The Pentagon gets all the money it wants, even if it doesn't get the policies it wants. And the machine keeps moving forward because it is the only bipartisan machine in the American government. And that's what makes me a pessimist. That's what keeps me up at night. Well, I'm sure. And it's interesting how, you know, Russiagate, Russiagate, Russiagate all the time. You don't see people out on the streets now at all. It's just it's not discussed. You know, these wars that we're in all over the place, Syria, Iran, it's just it's not discussed. And my my sense is, I mean, these politicians, they do what they do because it's popular. They think it'll help them get elected or reelected. So that indicates to me that the a large percentage, anyway, of the American people are fine with doing this policy. We have not learned that it doesn't work. And I don't know if it's our education system or, or maybe not enough people who have actually been in the field, like you, go into the schools, for example, and tell the people. It's frightening to me how the American people just want this aggressive military policy, and it doesn't ever work. It doesn't make us safer. I'm just so glad you brought that up, because this problem of American apathy regarding foreign policy is perhaps the alarm in the night we should be sounding, and yet no one is talking about it. There is an interesting set of reasons why the American people allow this to continue. First of all, you've got the base of the Republican Party, which has an enormous amount of whipped up nationalism and jingoism, and therefore will support anything that appears tough and rough and hard and policy. But they only represent 30% of the American people, give or take. Right. But then you've got the rest of the Americans who just don't care. Hmm. They don't get fired up about endless war the way they get fired up about health care and social security. They don't get fired up about endless war and the death of our soldiers and the death of civilians the same way they get whipped up about social issues, the culture wars like abortion and gay marriage. And I'm not telling you these are not important issues. They're extraordinarily important issues. But so is forever war. So is the fact that the United States is waging wars it cannot win indefinitely for 17 years, the longest in our history. 
I have a stepson who is 15 years old. He was born in war. He may serve in the same wars as me should he choose to go into the military. God forbid. That's a remarkable thing because it's never happened before. Since the Declaration of Independence, no 15-year-old child has ever been born into a war and still been eligible to serve in that war when he turned 18. That has never happened. This is the first time ever. Someone needs to ring the alarm. I'll tell you why I think they don't. Yeah, tell us. It's one key decision, and it was the cynical ending of the draft by Richard Nixon in 1973. Mm. Human nature being what it is, people care about things when they have skin in the game. When they are asked to either pay for war or serve in war themselves. If you wanted to end the forever war, you could do it in one year. You would re-implement the draft, and you would raise taxes. If you did those two things, if you did a pay-as-you-go rather than a credit card-based <laughs> war, because we, we put this whole war on the credit card, oh, yeah. and we don't ever oh, intend yeah. to pay it, it appears. If you made us pay-as-we-go and people saw it come out of their paychecks, and if you asked their sons and daughters on the day they graduated high school to go to places like Kandahar Province, Afghanistan, you would see a massive anti-war movement and marches on Washington that would put the Vietnam marches to shame because no one except for the small 1% of this country wants to sacrifice their family members for these endless wars. They don't care. And the, the, the bosses, okay, our masters, to be provocative again, sure, count on your apathy. They count on the apathy of the American people. That's why they don't want to draft. That's why they don't want to do a pay-as-you-go system, because they can only wage forever war with your apathy. So true, and drones are so useful for that. We can, you know, make the other side very, very upset with drone attacks that uh, wipe out, uh, you know, whole wedding parties and things like that, that that stir up, you know, really poke the hornet's nest. But none of our people are, you know, there's no boots on the ground from our side. So you're right, that... Ending the draft that Nixon did, very, very uh, bright thing to do and uh, created a lot of apathy. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Uh, our guest today is Danny Searson, uh, Major Danny Searson, who uh, wrote an article called The Tragic Record of American Regime Change in Truth Dig. And looking back at the military realities of the, our now 17-year-old war in Afghanistan, uh, you point out that less than a month after the 9-11 attacks, American bombs and paratroopers started falling on the Taliban regime throughout Afghanistan. It was all over pretty quick. The Taliban surrendered or fled, bin Laden escaped to Pakistan, and that was that, end of quote. Could it have ended then? Why are our troops still on the ground? More of them, in fact, under this orange president. You know, it's it's Afghanistan is an American tragedy. It's 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 a Greek style American tragedy. It's it's an odyssey. Um, it's the Iliad and the Odyssey just combined. And and someday we're going to look back, and there will be hundreds of books written on this topic. Afghanistan is a Model 1 regime change, as I mentioned earlier, just like Iraq sure. was, where we provide massive force to overthrow a regime, and then we never leave, and we try to we, we turn our military occupation into the development of a, quote, liberal democracy in our own image yeah. in the greater Middle East. It does not work. Counterterrorism, the combating of transnational terrorism, was the only reason for the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. 
Okay? It was the only reason we had to invade this country. There was nothing worth bombing. The Taliban itself was not a threat to us. There are complete no. local people. They don't even read. They can't find Milwaukee on a map. They, they're not coming to New York City to bomb your family. <laughs> but al-Qaeda was there. Yeah. We kill most of the al-Qaeda. The rest escape to Pakistan, which we, don't, we can't invade Pakistan. They have nuclear weapons. We can't invade Pakistan. They're our allies. Right. But we stay in Afghanistan indefinitely. Instead of pulling out and leaving a marginal force for counterterrorism and intelligence work, instead of letting the Afghans sort out what a post-Taliban Afghanistan looks like, mm. no, we have to stay and meddle. Mm. Well, now it's 17 years later. I served there in 2011 and 2012. Three of my soldiers were killed in my company. Over 30 were wounded. That was nearly 50% oh casualties. Oh That's when we had 100,000 soldiers on the ground. And you know how much ground we controlled? Whatever was under our feet. Nah. And that was it. Now we have only 15,000 soldiers, and we're told we're going to turn a corner. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, but there isn't. Right. The Special Inspector uh, That's General for Afghan Reconstruction. Yes, tell us about that report. An official, an official report. These are not hippies. This isn't <laughs> Amnesty International. This isn't Human Rights Watch. This is the Special Inspector General from the U.S. government who studies Afghan Reconstruction just released a report in April of 2018. They do quarterly reports to Congress that no one cares about, mm. but everyone should. It is the story no one is talking about that's most important in America right now is this SIGAR report, S-I-G-A-R. Look it up, Google it. It'll blow your mind. Tell us what it says yes. is that after 17 years, the Taliban is in control of and contesting more districts than at any time in the last 17 years of war. So for all our effort, for all my dead soldiers, for all those dead ta uh, Afghan civilians and Taliban fighters, we actually are in a worse position than we were when we first toppled the government. We've also found out that the Afghan government after 17 years still does not have a GDP sufficient to even pay its own military. So that means we're going to keep paying indefinitely or the government will fall. It also says that corruption is rampant, that billions have been lost mm. and unaccounted for through that corruption. The Taliban is growing. The Afghan security forces, meaning the army and the police, are deserting at high rates and being killed at even higher rates than before. And here's where it gets interesting. We don't want you to know that. Because this administration has made the decision, which is a remarkable decision, to, to stop reporting the level of Afghan casualties. Hmm. Now, Afghan casualties have been increasing year after year, both under Obama. This isn't a Trump problem, under Obama and under Trump. More Afghans are being killed, more Afghan police and soldiers are being killed than can be replaced. Plus, there's a lot that are deserting. But what we said was, that's bad news. We don't like bad news. So we're no longer going to report it monthly anymore. So you, you don't know. You can't find out. Unless you have the right clearance. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. We've decided to make this a secret. The, the Special Inspector General Report on Afghan Reconstruction says as follows. I mean, the... Literally, the conclusion is the war is failing, yeah. and it does not appear we can do anything about it. But who's in the streets screaming about this? Who's on the floor of Congress screaming about this? Nobody. Well, basically nobody, except for the far, far left, brave representatives like Barbara Lee, and the far, far libertarian right, brave senators who, at least on foreign policy, is brave, okay. Rand Paul. Rand Paul. And they're considered kooks. They're considered extremists. Everyone in the mainstream is like, no, they don't want to talk about Afghanistan. They count on our apathy, Bert. They certainly do. And I, I must say, there's a lot of things I don't like about Rand Paul, but his foreign policy, I kind of like. He's the most realistic, I think. And, you know, in order for a nation's government 
to be legitimate and secure, it the local people, I would think, have to see it as legitimate. There is the American-backed government in Afghanistan. How legitimate is that? And how does that degree of legitimacy in the eyes of the local people impact the American mission there? One of the problems is that when the United States imposes a government or backs a government, we immediately taint it with the notion of them being collaborators. Nationalists and Islamists, so often mix in their insurgency against us, are able to point to the government in Kabul, the American-imposed, uh, the American-emplaced uh, government, and they say, no, they're not legitimate. They're not legitimate because they represent the foreign occupier and the infidel. So we've immediately tainted them. That's not even their fault. Second problem is that corruption is rampant. We've been very, uh, we've ver- we've been unable to stop it. I mean, uh, corruption is is wild. I, I I know a general who shall remain nameless who worked in Afghanistan, and his partner, his Afghan partner, a general, used to show him photos and invite him to come stay at his mansion in Mumbai, in India. Okay, his salary does not warrant a second home, a mansion in India. In Mumbai, so where is that money coming from? Well, you can guess: theft and corruption and and money laundering. So there's massive problems with the literacy there. The second problem then is the elections have been tainted. The last two Afghan presidential elections were highly corrupt. Most reports on them said that there was ballot stuffing, there was uh, threatening and force used to intimidate people at the polls. Crooked deals were made between different political parties. When that starts happening, the Afghan people don't see the legitimacy of the government in Kabul. This isn't meant to be an attack on those individuals. There are some wonderful civil servants trying their best to make Afghanistan the best that it can be. But there's enough corruption, there's enough graft that many of the people see the government as illegitimate. The other problem is that Afghanistan is divided by ethnicity and by religion. The government in Kabul is largely supported by the northern tribes, Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Hazaras, whereas the Pashtun plurality, which lives in the south and east of the country, is less representative in the government and does not see it as legitimate. The unfortunate reality is many, if not most, of the people in the contested areas of Afghanistan would actually prefer some version of Taliban rule to government rule. And that's why the Taliban is able to contest a higher percentage of districts today than they have at any time since the fall of their regime. And I think it's fascinating that just a few days ago, I couldn't believe ISIS took credit for an attack in Afghanistan. I don't remember ISIS being there before. It's it's pretty new. And uh, so, you know, people have to be, I mean, clearly, I mean, if that's not a legitimate government, if people don't recognize it, if it's really corrupt, there's the organizing force of the Taliban, I guess. I mean, I don't know what other options they have. And uh, it just, it does amaze me. Now, it's impossible, of course, to keep up with Trump's policy statements. They're changing all the time. I have no idea. I can't keep up. I I could have sworn that at one time he was critical of the policy of regime change. And now we have National Security Advisor John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Where are they? Where is Trump on regime change in places like Iran and North Korea? This is a difficult question to answer because the president has been 
indecisive. He has uh, he's been contradictory often in his statements. The the president who ran can, uh, candidate Trump, right, right. quite frankly, for all his coarse language, I thought said some <laughs> extraordinarily logical, common sense type things. He has called the war in Afghanistan in the past a failure. He has called the war in Iraq a dumb war, the worst foreign policy disaster in American history. He's right about all those things. Yeah. I I had a hope that the president's instincts, at least on foreign policy, would serve us well and actually might be uh, uh, almost a cure to the Bush Model 1 of regime change and the Obama Model 2 regime change. It has not worked out thus far. No. I've written several articles where I've said, essentially, go with your instincts, Mr. President. Okay, and, and, and that may surprise people that I have a positive thing to say about the president. But what I'm trying to say is your instincts are right. For example, when he announced the latest surge in Afghanistan, which is no less than the fifth attempt at a surge, hmm. he said in the speech, which tells you something, because he didn't have to say this. He said, my instincts have been to pull out, but I'm going to listen to the Pentagon, I'm going to listen to my advisors, and we're going to give this thing one more try. That's essentially what he said. Wow. And, of course, I wrote articles saying, no, go with your instincts. Your instincts are right. This is not going to work out. This is going to be a continuing disaster and a quagmire. And then you have to look at who is advising the president. Yeah, right now. And Pompeo and Bolton are in. McMaster and Tillerson are out. I, I didn't agree with McMaster or Tillerson on just about anything, but they were bigger. They were more adult-like, <laughs> it appears, than the Bolton-Pompeo group. These are interventionist neoconservatives. There is no other way to put it. Their record, their rhetoric, has been for regime change everywhere and anywhere. They still won't say the Iraq war was a mistake. They talk about regime change in Iran, and they talk about regime change in North Korea. There is a record. This is factual. This isn't, this isn't a pejorative. This isn't an attack on my part. This is an ad hominem. Go to their record. Look at what they've written and look what they've said on the floor of Congress and what they've said on Fox News. Okay, There's a public record of these people being for regime change. The frightening thing is, Maybe the president does have the correct instincts on foreign policy, but he has now surrounded himself with people who are going to give him the exact opposite advice that candidate Trump would have given to a president or would have said he would do. Mm. That's, that's pretty amazing. It's inter- the power of the uh, neocons and the, uh, the war lovers. You know, we haven't let, me really- say one, I'm so, let me say one more thing about the neocons real quick. I, yeah. I have to. Uh, why are we still listening to this, people? That's my yeah. question. Jeez, really? It's amazing. The, the neocons, guys like Bolton, have, in my opinion, okay, I'm speaking unofficially, yes. but I can have some empirical data to back it up. They've been wrong about every single foreign policy decision since 2001. <laughs> they were behind every debacle in American foreign policy since 2001. But you know what? They still get hired as Fox News contributors. They're still think tanks willing to pay them to write. It's like you don't even have to be anywhere near correct, and you still get to have a voice in Washington. <laughs> Washington is, is, is like a sinkhole for failures. It's amazing. You, you, you can be wrong about everything, and, and, and someone in Washington will still fund you and pay you a salary more than our cops and teachers. It's, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. These people should be shouted down every time they come on television. If you were wrong about the Iraq War, and you will not admit at least that you were wrong, how are we still listening to you? It blows my mind. The neocons should be shouted down at every opportunity. And I'm sorry for the rant. It's just it's it's mind blowing. Every time I see them get a new job in government, and every time I see them become contributors at Fox News, it's just phenomenal uh, level of obtuseness that it allows that to be case. And somebody put it so well recently. I have to cite this uh, argument that if you have your car has a problem, 
You take it to mechanic. He or she screws it up, doesn't fix it. Do you go back to that mechanic? Not likely. But that's what we keep on doing. Uh, it, it is very interesting. And Syria. Okay, you know, there's this big civil war. We use, uh, It seems to me we used to be demanding regime change there. We have some troops on the ground there. What, what's our policy in, in Syria now? Are we no longer pushing for regime change? I wish I understood our policy. <laughs> you know, Syria is the next quagmire. Um, Syria is, in my opinion, I've called it the Syria trap. I've written several articles about it. I'm working on a long one now. Okay, where do we begin? Well, we had an indecisive president, Obama, who didn't really want to get involved, but allowed himself to be talked into rhetoric calling for the fall of the Bashar al-Assad regime. I think the Obama administration thought that Assad was about to fall, and they felt like they wanted to be on the right side of history, so they provided some rhetoric and a little bit of funding for the rebels in favor of regime change. But Obama intelligently uh, recognized that boots on the ground in Syria would probably be another quagmire. And yeah. so he, he held back, okay? Uh, even when his advisors, guess who? Hillary Clinton, for example, mm-hmm. were calling for more intervention, mm-hmm. okay? So that's where it stands. We only get involved because ISIS is there. We do a limited bombing campaign, a few hundred advisors under President Obama. And it's this weird thing because we are technically calling for the regime to fall, but we're actually de facto allies with the regime in fighting the Islamist rebels like ISIS. President Trump comes in and you know, it increases the number of troops on the ground, increases the battle against ISIS, really does bring the fight to ISIS and, and has an extraordinary amount of success in, uh, in eliminating the physical caliphate. But it still occasionally bombs the Assad regime, uh, coming far too close to killing Russians, uh, whenever they u- allegedly use chemical weapons, it still won't back down from the requirement that the Assad has to leave for a peace settlement. And so we're in this strange stasis in Syria where we've got these boots on the ground, these soldiers occupying territory and supporting proxies. And in the de facto sense, they are actually allied with the Assad regime because they have the same enemies, which means they're also de facto allied with Russia and Iran because we have the same enemies in Syria. But we still keep saying, well, we want Assad to fall. But we're not willing to do anything to bring that fall about. And thank God we're not, because that would be a disaster that could cause a major regional, if not great power, war. America's Syria policy at this point appears to me to be so incoherent as to almost be absurd. And the longer we stay, this humble author would tell you, the longer we stay, the more problems we will find, the more the mission will creep, and the deeper into the quagmire we will fall. And that is my fear. Uh, If I was a betting man... Syria is the next American quagmire in the Middle East. Hmm. We've seen this before, again and again and again. And, you know, again, it's, this is not new, this, this bipartisan uh, support of regime change uh, under Eisenhower, who, you know, should have—he did a lot of good things domestically. But in terms of foreign policy, I don't know, you would have thought that maybe he would have understood long before his message in 1961 about uh, watching out for the uh, military-industrial complex. But under his, well, State Department, and there was a State Department then, there was regime change in Guatemala and in Iran. Uh, And how how did that go for us? You know, there's a long history of this regime change in the early 50s. Whatever the United States intelligence community touches when it comes to regime change, 
ends up becoming a massive disaster and has blowback effects on American security, negative blowback effects. President Eisenhower was a remarkable individual who said some beautiful things and had some really positive aspects, but Eisenhower was trapped in the Cold War alarmist mindset. Mm. Therefore, anything vaguely communist or socialist is the enemy and must be combated at all turns. And so in 1953, a nationalist uh, elected leader of uh, Iran, Mossadegh, uh, is, is overthrown after he nationalizes oil mm, in Iran. God forbid. Really? Nationalizes his own oil. I know. <laughs> For the good of He's the... He's overthrown. The Iranians have never forgotten. Of course. Much of the anti-Americanism and the burning of the American flag on the streets of Tehran really goes back to that American meddling and overthrow of their democratically and popularly elected leader, Mossadegh. In 1954... Um, there's a coup in Guatemala that the CIA is involved in. Uh-huh. Plenty of blowback effects. Central America becomes a battleground for the next 30 years. Uh, hundreds of thousands uh, die in those wars, not just in Guatemala, but ac- across Central America, in a massive fight between mostly elected socialist left-leaning regimes and mostly mm-hmm. American-backed right-wing juntas and militia groups. The Contras in Nicaragua come to mind. Yeah. So that's, that's Eisenhower. The problem is this is another bipartisan thing. Yeah. Regime change is bipartisan because the Kennedy administration is willing to back a coup in South Vietnam, which ends with the murder of Diem, who had been uh, uh, the president. So it's not just Republican presidents no. to do it. And the record doesn't stop in 1973, September 11th. September the 11th. First September 11th tragedy of 1973, the Pinochet regime is put in place in a coup, a right-wing military dictatorship in Chile. Thousands are disappeared. Yes. Thousands more are tortured. There's always blowback. We don't achieve anything. America is not safer because we put a right-wing dictator in charge of Chile. The American people are no safer. The people of Chile were worse off. And they're still living with the consequences of that dark, dark time. So this is a long record of American regime change. We wouldn't ever accept meddling in our elections, even the most casual way, as we've seen through this Russiagate scandal. And yet we have a record. I I would have trouble listing all of the areas, all of the the governments that the United States was complicit in overturning and or meddling in their elections. Uh, There are two reasons for that. Number one, uh, I just can't remember them all because there's too many. And the second one is a lot of it's classified, so we don't even know how much there's been. You know, we, we finally started to have declassification of a lot of these coups that we fostered in the 50s and 60s, but there were more. I can almost definitely assure you, it's just that we don't know because they haven't been reported. But, you know, 50 years from now, expect us to know more. <laughs> it's a tragic record of regime change. It's a tragic record of meddling in the sovereignty of other nations. The United States needs to do less. That's my modest proposal for foreign policy. Simple. Two words. Do less. Oh, we might save a lot of money, too. Imagine that. And you're, you're right. I mean, Cuba had been a, a beautiful playground for the mafia. And then, well, imagine that. The Cuban people didn't like uh, uh, Batista, a dictator who, who played, you know, who was in bed with the, with the mafia. And uh, so John Kennedy was talked into regime change as well. It didn't work out so well with the Bay of Pigs invasion. And, of course, it... Uh, it seems like uh, for the way Castro kept in power all these years was based on opposition to America. Like, had it not been for that, he might have, you know, there might have been more democratic elections in Cuba. And then uh, 
in 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 Nicaragua, as you mentioned, you know, the we overthrew, or, or, or the the local people overthrew the U.S. supported dictator Somoza, uh, and the people went left. And Reagan thought regime change would be a swell idea. That didn't work out so well either. And I can imagine uh, Nicaragua is still. I mean, there's a lot of trouble down there, but it's still going on. So, as we said in the beginning of this discussion, we Americans don't like it when an outside power interferes in our electoral decisions. History shows again and again for our trying uh, to interfere in other countries, as Rocky so famously said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. So why is it that mainstream Democrats and Republicans ignore, just constantly ignore this lesson? Is it just looking tough is what sells and people don't look beyond that? How can they ignore these obvious lessons. I think there's three reasons, and it's different for each side of the political spectrum. And one of them is bipartisan. We'll start with the first, which is the Republicans. For the most part, at least since Nixon, probably since Goldwater, the Republican Party has benefited from whipping up the militarism, whipping up the nationalism of a certain portion of the American public, and that's that's what we call the National Security Republicans. Okay, man, my my own father is, is a National Security Republican. People who believe that we need to support the Republicans because they're the only ones who are tough, they're the only ones who are aggressive, they're the only ones who can protect us. The Democrats have the inverse of that, which is an insecurity complex. Uh, the Democrats are terrified of being painted with the the dove brush. Okay, being painted as doves, they're afraid of being called doves like George McGovern was when he was shellacked in the 1972 election. Uh, The Democrats almost have to overcompensate with toughness on foreign policy to avoid being labeled weak. So it's the inverse of the Republican problem. And then the third thing is, well, the military-industrial-congressional complex Ah. is extraordinarily powerful. We've spread out national defense jobs. We've spread out bases into nearly every single congressional district so that nobody wants to cut the military budget. Nobody wants to ask questions of the Pentagon. No one wants to sort of uh, audit these wars because it's a job creator. In a government that is increased, in an economy that's increasingly automated and increasingly post-industrial, national security jobs, national defense jobs, arms dealers is one of the last really profitable and stable industries in the United States. And it's a, it's a tragedy. And, and the result, of course, is massive corporate profits, redistribution of wealth to the upper 1%, yeah, yeah. of course. And, and, and the United States ends up being, which we are, and no one knows this or cares, we are the number one arms dealer in the world. We sell more weapons to more nefarious regimes than any country in the world. How can we be the city on a hill? How can we be the beacon of freedom at the same time as we are selling arms to people who cut heads off for sorcery, Mm. which is what happens in Saudi Arabia? Mm. And you have to ask yourself that question. So I think that helps explain the bipartisan agenda. The Republicans want to be tough. The Democrats are afraid to look weak. And everybody is in on the game. Everybody's in on the economic fix. The fix is in, and you cannot count on senators and congressmen to fix it unless you hold them accountable to ballot box. The American people are going to have to use their feet if they want this to change. They're going to have to get off their phones and get into the streets if they want to change, and I'm not convinced they do. It does seem to be the case that people don't want to get off their phones. And you you bring up, uh, I mean, Yemen right now. You talk about poking the hornet's nest, and all we don't, we Americans don't hear much about Yemen. But the entire Middle East knows about the American support, the American bombs that are being used by the Saudis and causing incredible human catastrophe in Yemen right now. And it's not going to help us. But the Saudis are our buddies. They got oil. 
it just is really amazing that we haven't learned these lessons. What what can people do? I mean, we have we're in the early days of the 2018 election. Uh, what what's your sense? Do you think? Are, I mean, obviously most people are not talking about such issues, but are some people, do you see some candidates, some races where it, there's some hope for this that, that people can participate in? And of course, call your congressman. It does matter. It absolutely does make a difference. You got suggestions, Major Searson? Yeah. So I'm I'm in an, in an awkward position uh, in the brief time that I'm still in active duty where I, I can't support a candidate. I can't oh, support true. a specific yeah. uh, party. But here's what I'll tell you. If, presumably, you as a listener want to end the endless wars, want to kind of audit the Pentagon and, and, and change America's national security posture, there, there is uh, a future alliance that needs to be brokered. Oh. Perhaps the only way that I think is going to get done in Washington is if two opposite sides of the spectrum find common ground and decide to push this. And that is the far left. We're talking Bernie Sanders, maybe Elizabeth Warren, people like Barbara Lee in the House. Okay, the truly dovish, more radical Democrats yep. or socialists in the case of Bernie Sanders, yep. uh, independents. And then there's the Rand Paul libertarian wing of the Republican Party. Yes. Now, these two wings hate each other because they can't agree on health care. What I'm saying is if they could ever find common ground on foreign policy and work together, there is a potential alliance out there yes. uh, to change the national security state. It's a long shot. I'm not an optimist, yeah. but uh, again, I can't come out for any individual candidate. What I can tell you is if listeners wanted that change, they would have to broker this compromise between these very opposing wings of the two parties. It can be done. I, I think the, the Rand Paul thing, I, was, I thought he would do better, but then again, the media paid so much attention to the entertainer. Uh, well, on, uh, Major Danny Sherson, thanks so much about shedding light into this area, and uh, it really matters so much. We don't like regime change. And yet we do it all the time. Thank you so much for being with us again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity and the platform, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Oh, I'm sure. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, we don't like it when other countries meddle in our elections. But really, really, nobody does it better than we do. Thanks for listening. Say